before we begin, a quick word from our hosts. As we began the post-production on this podcast, news of the Oxford, Michigan school shooting hit the airwaves. And it seemed a little tone deaf to release an episode. Guy and I both have really serious ties to the state of Michigan. We talk about Michigan football all the time. It's fun, silly banter. And then this comes out of the state that we love so much. Four people died. Seven more were injured. It hits a little bit hard when you're a parent. Guy's a brand new parent. My kids, well, my kids are the age of the victims. And of Ethan Crumbly, the boy who pulled the trigger. From what I understand, he was a boy really crying out for help. And he didn't get it. And now we're playing this chapter again of America's unique problem with gun violence. I don't know what to do. You should know that Legal Talk Network, the producer of this podcast and many others, is making a donation to the kids' families. We're going to put links to those victims' funds in the show notes. It's an inadequate token. It's beyond the typical thoughts and prayers of which I'm tired of hearing. Thoughts and prayers. This isn't a political show. I don't have the answers. I don't know what to do. Go check in on your kids. Give them a hug. We now begin our show as originally recorded. Hail to the victors, valiant. Hail to the conquering heroes. Too much? Too much No, no, no. Not not enough. I love it, and I love when you sing, and I love Michigan. This is like my Venn diagram of happy right now. (laughs) Well, I know that you're excited. I, I am very excited. Tell everybody what happened this weekend. Well, I will tell you, this is the first time. This is the problem with being a Michigan fan. This is the first time I have gone into a game thinking we were going to lose ever in the history of my life. And we finally won. So I don't ah. know if that's a good superstition or not, but the Michigan, Ohio, Yeah, you're like the opposite fan of me. I go into every game thinking we're going to lose, so... That's because you're a stoic, and I'm... Uh, <laughs> I guess. Preparing for the worst. <laughs> totally. No, it's great. And then, of course, last night, uh, the, the rankings came out, and we are now number two, which, by the way, grossly overrated. I don't want to say that, but it feels True. like we're overrated at two. Yeah, I think everybody's overrated except for Georgia. Yeah. Them dogs. We'll see what happens. And I think you can take that. Oh, I'm, I was going to try and make a corollary to lawyers thinking to do a great job at winning prospects that they want to win. It's the Lake Wobegon effect where everyone is above average. But yeah, beware of your own, your own rating system. You're probably not as good as you think you are. The funny thing is, this is going to go live and Michigan's going to have lost in the Big Ten Championship oh, dude, to Iowa. Dude, dude, and everyone's going to be like, put the stoic away, Guy. Good Lord. You're killing me. Ah. Uh. I don't even want to think about that. I have to live in a world where perpetually Michigan is going to win in my head. Conrad, in addition to the greatness that is Michigan football, what are we going to be talking about today? We have a quicker view of the news. We're going to go into the very recently hot off the press released local rankings factor report from Darren Shaw. And most interesting, we have the conclusion of our amazing conversation with the distinguished Dean Eric Goldman around Google My Business and Section 230. 
which interestingly is my kind of fantasy desired custom vanity license plate, which I do not have. And my most important question for you is, what makes the world go round? Money makes round. Welcome to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing, teaching you how to promote, market, and make fat stacks for your legal practice. Here on Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing. Conrad, hit us with that good news. All right. So we've got that Google Core algorithm update that just came out. (sighs) And uh, there was an interesting article out by Carolyn Elephant, who is a recent friend of the pod. She came on, I think, two or three sessions ago. And we, we, we also had uh, Hello Divorce on the pod. And those two ran into each other. Carolyn noticed uh, Hello Prenup, new business called Hello Prenup, which may very reasonably thought uh, and get confused with Hello Divorce. So that was an interesting post that Carolyn put together. We will put that in the show notes to see whether or not we have trademark infringement issues between Hello Prenup and hello divorce. I like I almost feel like this is comedy. <laughs> like Hello like this, Custody. Hello Custody in 2022. Hello Legal Marketing coming brought to you by Guy and Conrad totally. in 2022. Totally. Oh, Hello Prenup was on Shark Tank. That was what instigated Carolyn to write about it. Huh. So, yeah, interesting. There you go. It seems like someone would have done a trademark search before they did something like this. It seems like you would be aware of this. Humans, silly humans. I personally can't throw trademark bombs, but that's a different conversation. And now for our Legal Trends Report Minute, brought to you by Clio. From the 2021 Clio Legal Trends Report, lawyers need access to revenue and spending information. Lawyers widely agree that revenue is one of the best metrics for tracking firm performance. Interesting. 84% agree that this is the metric they focus on and wish to improve in their firms when we asked about this in 2018. To make the right decisions when it comes to planning for the future success of their firms, lawyers need to understand their revenue and their spending above all else. To develop a baseline of how well lawyers understand their revenue, we asked how much they believed it had grown since the same time last year. 56% believe it increased in that period, with one quarter of all respondents recording that it grew by 50% or more. You know, there's some interesting stuff in here, and we're going to talk more about this in our next episode, right, Conrad? Yeah, I mean, the fascinating parts of this to me, I think if you just look at the basic number, 56% believe revenue increased. That's like a coin flip. That's, that's a, <laughs> right. That means 44% of people thought their revenue did not increase. That is not growth for an industry, right? right. That's uh, not great. I think what Guy's foreshadowing here is we want to talk about your revenue objectives and what your marketing looks like in order to get you there. Do you have enough gas in the tank to get you from New York to Florida? Or are you going to get stuck in Delaware somewhere? And is revenue growth really the right metric? Depends on your practice area. Right. You know, as small business owners ourselves, I think a lot about profitability as well, but we'll talk about that next time. To learn more about these opportunities and much more for free, download Clio's Legal Trends Report at clio.com forward slash trends. That's Clio spelled C L 
I-O. Or amazingly, you can just search for it on Google because it will come up number one if you search for Clear Legal Trends Report. Go SEO. <laughs> and they do that really well because they keep putting the Clear Legal Trends Report on the same URL, right? Again, basic SEO 101 stuff, all those links going to that very, 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 very strong page. That's how it works. 101. All right. So to start our first segment, we mentioned earlier that the local rankings factor report has come out. This is a report that was originally created by David Mim. It's that the, the baton was passed over to Darren Shaw. And Darren finally released this. He was really, really nice to me. He let me do a webinar about this before it actually went public. And so for some of my clients, we were actually able to share some of the information in the local rankings factor. I think one of the important things, and by the way, you should read this. It is very, A, local is a really big deal. B, most of you don't have a fully strong understanding of what it takes to actually rank in local. And C, it changes all the time, right? And it, it, it is really evolving. And so I really think this is something that you guys should take the time to read um, because there's a lot in there that, that may be myth bustings. The other thing to note as you're reading that, Guy, I think this is important. As attorneys, this does not represent the legal industry. This represents the overall industry. And my bias is that legal is so, it's so competitive. And frankly, it's so dirty that most of the people who are responding to the local rankings factor report aren't dealing with the garbage that Guy and I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Do you think that's a fair lens with which to look at the report, Guy? Yeah. I mean, look, you know, I think we've already acknowledged it, but acknowledge it again. We're biased about this survey because we <laughs> contribute to it. But these are, in my opinion, last you know, 15 years of doing this or so, some of the best minds in local marketing. And so don't take Conrad and I's word for it. Check out what they have to say. But to Conrad's point, I mean, there are folks that work in some other ones, locksmiths that tend to be rough and Plumbers. some other industries. But legal, yeah, legal's definitely in that corner of the world is, you know, if you just go look, I mean, even even some of the stuff that we talk about with um, Dean Goldman in terms of uh, fake reviews and stuff, it's nasty out there. My thing about this one of the things I think was interesting to me is I'd love to see these same survey questions asked if we took keyword in the business name field off the table, because I think a lot of the survey respondents, they think, oh yeah, GMB. Well, GMB is a factor. Business name and title is a huge factor. And so that disproportionately impacts. And that's why I, that's my opinion of why you see links going down and like, you know, links, everybody knows how I feel about links, but they're trending down over the last couple of years. And so my insight there is I think that's more of a reflection of people thinking the power of links is being diluted. But again, I got to tell you, show me a competitive local SERP that has three listings that aren't spam, that aren't keyword business in the name, and don't have links. I d haven't seen them. Show me. Guy will send you $100. Well... I'm, I might send you $100 in Monopoly money, but I'll take you lunch if you're in the same area as That's me fair. and are willing to be responsible about COVID things. <laughs> wow. Wow. Good. Wow. I like that. A little science. So, I mean, I think Guy was talking about the differences. So, so overall, focus on Google My Business has gone up, and I think you're right. This is probably a factor of non-legal plumber locksmith respondents answering this question because as we know and as we have whined about, keywords in that business name 
have an impact, right? In the Google My Business business name, which is now no longer called Google My Business, which drives me bananas, but so be it. I know. I keep doing that too. Everyone's like, Ugh. oh, it's Google Business Profiles. I'm like, you know what I mean? Like, Just, we are it. people correcting you? Who's correcting yeah. you? Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Like, they're like, we got you. We, we got you. I'm like, <laughs> okay, you did. Total, I'm totally wrong. Is this the SEO gotcha game? It, it to, it's, that You're is, that is that's what SEO is. It's, you know, ranking updates and FUD and scare everybody to make yourself look like an expert. But turns out you and I were both totally wrong about one thing, and that's geotagging photos, right? Geotagging photos. <laughs> make sure that you send your staff out to take selfies in and around local landmarks near your office, and that is going to be the major differentiator that puts you over the top. True or false, Guy? If you don't know what we're talking about, go read the local search ranking factors. We're not going to tell you. That's a teaser to go download or you can't even download. I don't think it's a PDF, right? Who, Except for lawyers who downloads PDFs. You're just making me be nice here. Yeah. Well, lawyer, actually, in fairness, lawyers print and fax. So Guy's point here is that you may have heard from some self-proclaimed legal marketing experts, ninjas and mavens, that what you should do is make sure that you geotag your photos and add them to your GMB profile because Google uses that as a ranking factor. And that is one of the three easy steps to dominating the local pack. It's a bunch of bullshit. And it is sold to you by people who liked to make themselves look smart by telling you bullshit that you haven't heard elsewhere because it is bullshit. So. Don't do that. There you go. I've now just given us the R rating for this this cast. But this this annoys me. This is the kind of stuff that annoys me. And the funny thing is, this was the was this the number one myth or the number two myth that number uh, two number two myth in the local ranking factor report for, that the experts are saying don't work. So this garbage is propagated around the web from people who don't know what they're talking about. It just has, and people like us get annoyed about it, and that's why it's showing up in this local ranking factor. So, Guy, let me ask you a question. What is the thing? What is the driver, in your opinion, not necessarily local ranking factor, what is the driver of success in a highly competitive market like legal? Name your firm the keywords. All right, can't do that. Number two, I mean, look, you can make a compelling argument for reviews, right? Yeah, And because reviews also impact conversion, which is a big thing that uh, we talk about and that Darren highlights in various places, but you can make a strong argument that reviews are more important than maybe links. I, I, the other thing that I always do, and I think maybe that other people on the survey don't think about it this way, all this other stuff, like they list like uh, primary category. And I'm like, that's like table stakes. Come on. Like that. And, and maybe that's like the curse of knowledge, right? Because I'm like, oh, yeah, obviously you put your primary category as descriptive as you can. And some people might choose like a general category or get the category wrong or whatever. So you can make an argument for category. But that stuff's table stakes. Filling out the Google, my, the Google business profile, profile, if that's a thing. That's table stake stuff. Like you're not going to rank in Chicago or New York for personal injury lawyer in the local pack by getting the, the category right. Like at best, it's necessary, but not sufficient. And if you want to know what you really need beyond table stakes, in my view, it still remains links. End of rant. Let me ask a question. So one of the things that came out of this survey that I thought was counterintuitive and interesting was that multiple categories do not necessarily dilute that primary category, that they're actually additive. Yep. According to the study, adding diversity in the secondary categories is actually an asset, not a liability. And I've, I found that interesting. I'm curious what you think about that. Here's the thing, though. Here's the counterpoint to defend the primary alone category again, 
is that if yes. Google misses, if they get it wrong, right? So, um, so let me, let's back up a second. I'm sure we're going over time on this segment, but let's say you do primary personal injury attorney, secondary criminal justice attorney, and someone searches personal injury attorney and Google shows criminal justice attorney, even if you rank, you're probably not going to convert because consumer looks at that and says, hey, wait, there's other personal injuries around this listing. There's some criminal justice attorney. So that's the, that's the drawback. That's what I would love to see is a study on what percentage of the time Google gets that wrong, but it does happen. And that's the counterpoint to multiple categories. Now, if you just do a more general category as a secondary, right? You just do law firm as a secondary. Here's the trade-off there. You're going to show up for a lot more terms, but you're probably going to get a lot more calls that are unqualified because people are just seeing law firm and Google's matching you on law firm. So you do personal injury work and someone's searching landlord tenant and Google shows law firm and you get the call, you might be like, hooray, I ranked for another term, but not hooray because now my intake resources are deployed against landlord tenant. But maybe you can refer that out to build a referral relationship so that you scratch their back, they scratch yours. Great way to make friends. Yeah, I we do not run anyone with just a generic law firm. I don't know if we do, to be completely honest with you. Th that to me sounds like a nightmare of unqualified at best. And right. worst, you're telling the algo that you are, I always use this parallel, you're a restaurant, you're not a pizza restaurant. No one knows what kind of restaurant they want. Like people know what they want to go to. They don't want to go to generic restaurant, right? It's like, you want pizza, you want sushi. That's a good point. No one wants <laughs> restaurant, to go to family restaurant. Family restaurant. Yes. Not even family restaurant, right? It's just restaurant. We might not even like families. We might not like children. Hmm. All right. <laughs> With that, we're going to wrap up this segment. Read this. Go. We'll put it in the show notes. Please take the time to go and read the Local Rankings Factor Report. And after the break, Eric Goldman returns to tell you more about Section 230. Smart firms use CallRail to track where every lead comes from. PPC, LSA, organic search, or even offline ads. CallRail tells you which channels drive your best leads. CallRail even integrates with your favorite CRM or practice management tools to help manage your leads and see the ROI on your marketing investments. Know exactly which marketing tools work. Plans start at 45 bucks a month. We recommend CallRail to every single one of our clients. Go to callrail.com slash lunch hour now and try it for free. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Welcome back, everybody. So our super loyal listeners will recall that last week we had the distinct pleasure of talking with internet law expert Dean Eric Goldman about the intersection of Google business profiles, reviews, and Section 230. 
If you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, please do go back and give it a listen. And we'll have a link to that episode in the show notes here. Don't worry, we'll wait for you. Okay, now that you're all caught up, we're going to pick up the rest of the conversation with Dean Goldman, where we talked with him about fake listings, competitive keyword bidding, and emojis. Roll it. All right, I'm going to ask you a question. This came out, there's a, there's a blog post by an internet marketing guy named Doug Bradley. He's a really smart guy. And by the way, Guy and I have spent lots of our clients' money trying to deal with fake listings on Google. Right there's there's hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands of fake law firms, fake locations cropping up and doing very very well at winning the SEO game, the local search game, and driving a lot of business. And so we've spent a lot of time dealing with these fake listings. Doug Bradley writes that the problem with the fake listings, specifically around law firms, and it, it, it doesn't just it's not just law firms. It's locksmiths are another one that's kind of uh, locksmiths and plumbers tend to be big offenders as well. But it's so bad that it's harmful to the public. And he says in a blog post, and we'll put this in the show notes. But this is a plea to the FTC to take action specifically and solely on the regulation of the Google My Business platform. And the supporting rationale is based on Google My Business serving as a public utility in place of phone companies and the accompanying FTC-regulated phone book directories. So Bradley's basically saying, from my understanding here, is that it's so bad that... And, and people have switched their use of phone books to Google, which, like, not a surprise. We saw that a while ago, right? But that the information in the directories is so bad and so inaccurate that it's actually misleading to the public and therefore should be regulated. Guy and I have talked about this ad nauseum, and that's actually when we realized we wanted to have you on the show when we were fighting about this philosophically. So I, I love your feedback on this. So my apologies, I haven't read that blog post. Uh, so my comments aren't specific to the blog post. There was an interesting phrase that you mentioned there about public utility. And I just want to flag that phrase as one of the ways in which critics of the existing internet ecosystem are trying to exercise control over the content of the system, but actually in a way that is completely contrary to the other stated objectives of that blog post. If in fact a review service is a quote public utility, it might be required to carry all which means it would be required to potentially carry all legal content, including reviews that the service doesn't know are fake, it hasn't been able to determine are fake, they would still be required to carry them, even if they thought they were fake and wanted to remove them. So we have to be careful. The sensorial objectives are coming from both angles, both we want to force more removal, but there's also a whole strata of people who are advocating for removing less content, which would be directly contrary to everything discussed. In terms of trying to weed out fake reviews through regulatory initiatives, let's start with the baseline. Who's the person who's breaking the law here? And it is whoever is uploading the uh, the content with the fake information. And so the question is, what are government regulators doing to manage that level of regulatory activity? Are they going and identifying the people who are engaging in these coordinated, inauthentic campaigns and right. holding them accountable? And if they're not, why aren't they? Isn't that what we pay them to do with our tax dollars? Now, in terms of holding the review services liable, we have to be much more thoughtful about that. This is exactly what Section 2.3 was designed to do. It does create a different regulatory model than was applicable to yellow page publishers who were liable for the ads that they published as if they had written them themselves. But Section 2.3 says the exact opposite. It says that, that the review services 
are not liable for that content that comes from third parties. And so it reaches a completely different result. The, the fix to that, any fix to that is going to get exactly into the reason why we wanted Section 230 in the first place, because of the fact that if we hold liability for taking action against content that is not fit for the audience, then internet services might choose to not do that work whatsoever. Right. Or they might say, we can't be in this business. It's not profitable for us. Remember, the advertisers were paying the publishers in the Yellow Pages to publish that. There was enough money to do the legal work. But the review authors aren't paying Google to publish their reviews. There's not the same kind of financial liquidity in that market to enable Google to do the work that we would expect it from the Yellow Page publishers. So it's just like an apples and oranges comparison, but I think that by focusing on the review service, we have to also make sure that we're not taking our eye off the ball. The real problem is these people are engaged in these coordinated inauthentic attacks, and I want to make sure that our regulators are fighting that. Okay, so I wanted to shift gears for a second and talk about competitive keyword bidding. So I know you've published a lot on this. So Maybe you can set it up for us, the issues, and, and describe it so that I'm not uh, doing it. You're the expert on this stuff. So I'm a, I'm a lawyer, and I want to bid on the lawyer down the street's name on Google Ads. Is that okay? So in general, my view, the answer is yes. But we have to put an asterisk about that because there's some reasons why that might not be okay. But just to make sure everyone's clear, I'm guessing most of your listeners are very familiar with competitive keyword bidding. But as you said, we've got services that will accept advertising that will be displayed in response to the keywords that are selected by the advertiser. Google is the most common and the most popular one of that. So you can say, I'm going to buy you know, Jeff Jones, comma, ESQ um, as the trigger for my advertising so that anytime someone's searching for that, my ads will show up as a possible resource to the person doing the search. There have been many legal battles over this, and the legal battles have uh, targeted both the seller of the keyword advertising, a site like Google, as well as the buyer of the keyword advertising, the advertiser. With respect to the lawsuits against the uh, sellers of keywords, the courts have essentially uniformly held that the sellers of keywords are not liable for selling the, the advertising um, that's true both on a trademark front, and then uh, we haven't seen too many publicity rights claims, but the publicity rights claims are also not likely to be successful. So basically at this point, Google and the other keyword ad sellers act as if they face no liability for um, selling the keywords. And their perspective is that like, as long as you don't pretend to be Coke when you're Pepsi, it's okay, right? As well, they actually they don't get into the actual keywords that are purchased. In terms of the ad copy that's displayed, right. each service has their own uh, policies. But Google's policy basically says that a trademark owner can opt out of having their trademark displayed in the ad copy. So you mentioned the, the Coke-Pepsi situation. So imagine that Pepsi was buying the trademark Coke um, as a keyword ad. Coke would have the ability to tell Google, if Pepsi is showing the word Coke anywhere in that advertisement, block it. Now, there might be some limits on that depending on Google's policy. But in general, the idea is then Pepsi would have to make its marketing claims without reference to the competitor, but it could still have the ad displayed when the competitor's trademark is used as the search query. So from that perspective, 
what we generally see is advertisements that make comparative claims, but without referencing the trademark uh, that they're comparing to. Um, the ad I use in uh, in my internet law class is an ad for Volvo. Um, if you search on the keyword Mercedes, Volvo wanted to show up and they say, switch to Volvo and we'll give you an incentive for doing so. They never reference the word Mercedes in the advertisement. Right. And yet they're still making an, a comparative claim in the ad. They're just not saying who they're comparing to. And is that problematic? I mean, we've seen some really clever, I would call them clever because I'm a spineless internet marketer, clever approaches to that. So for example, why pay $49 when you can get it cheaper, right? Or, you know, we've seen uh, people's taglines getting taken away. So there's, you know, in the legal marketing world, you may not even know this, kind of hope you don't. There's a whole uh, hammer, the hammer of the law, right? And those would be a big TV advertiser, right? The Texas hammer. And the, the competitive advertisement might be don't get nailed right? And so there's, they're specifically not referencing them, but they are absolutely referencing that competitor. You know, I'd, I'd be curious on your perspective on that. Uh, and I do know that example. Um, oh, and in, good. In, well, in, I'm, in, I'm sorry, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've never actually seen the Texas Hammer ads on TV. I've watched right. a couple uh, on YouTube and you know, I don't know what to say. They don't speak to me, but I don't think I'm in the target <laughs> audience. Um, and actually, I've used that example, that very example, uh, okay. the Texas Hammer example, in class as an ex exercise for my students to talk about the uh, internet uh, keyword uh, situation. Because I think it's a really good example. Because as you say, the ads will do some riff on the term hammer, which they're free to use. And if you look at the trademark of the Texas Hammer, it's actually the Texas Hammer. It's not hammer. And they likely couldn't get a trademark for hammer, they certainly couldn't control it from being used for other legitimate purposes. So the, it's just a messy situation. And those cases are still ongoing. And uh, I think uh, at least one or two of them are now at the Fifth Circuit. But the question that you're raising, so we talked about earlier, the liability of the keyword seller, you're raising the question about what's the liability of the keyword buyer. So this is the trademark owner or the publicity rights owner uh, suing the advertiser for buying their trademark or their publicity rights rights if they're covered under that, and then showing up an ad that might be competitive or comparative in nature. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of cases on that. Honestly, I don't have a complete inventory of those. I'm sure it's over 100 cases that have hit the courts. And of course, there's far more that have been litigated that didn't reach some opinion. They they settled. And some of you may be familiar with the FTC's intervention in the 1-800-CONTACTS campaign, which got a series of settlements from buyers of keyword ads uh, based on uh, the 1-800-CONTACTS trademark. Um, and the FTC actually did enforcement action against 1-800-CONTACTS for this string of settlements. So we don't even know how many other settlements there are. We just know about the campaigns that 1-800-CONTACTS engaged in, but there's surely many more. And many of those disputes never reach the court because they're resolved some other way in extrajudicial solutions. And I'll talk about those in a moment. The short answer is that it's actually extremely hard for trademark owners and publicity rights owners to establish a, a valid claim against a competitive keyword buyer, the advertiser, especially if the trademark isn't mentioned in the ad copy. If it's not mentioned whatsoever, those cases have, have almost universally failed. At this point, I don't consider that to be a viable claim. When the trademark is in the ad copy, then we have to look very closely at what's in the ad copy, what kind of deception it might be creating. But we look at the ad copy and we usually have to look at the landing page where the ad copy links to and look at them as a package and say, what are consumers going to get from that package? Mm. How likely are they going to be confused in the overall package? And it's very hard for trademark owners and publicity rights owners to establish the kind of uh, claim that they want. 
The other thing I'll mention is that it's just not financially tenable in many cases to bring these claims. I have a long list of cases where trademark owners have sued over having their trademark uh, used as the trigger for ads, sometimes showing up in the ad copy. And then we get into court opinions how much damages were actually at issue here. And the, the numbers are just mockable in some cases. I remember one case, there were three clicks total that the trademark owner was litigating over. It's like, really, guys? And there's a couple of cases where literally the defense and I was able to show there were zero sales produced from their keyword ad purchases. It's like, really, guys, this is what you're going to litigate over? It's just not worth it. You're just forking over money to your trademark lawyers so they can fork it over to the private schools that their kids go to. You're not solving your problems. And as we regularly do as a segment on this show, dear state bar regulators, please go check out Dean Goldman's blog posts on these subjects, especially in Ohio. We're looking at you. Okay, we're running out of time, but I have to, one more thing, and this is just for fun. Tell us what we need to know about emojis. <laughs> I'm sorry, how much time do I have? <laughs> you can't spring that on me and say, hey, talk about one of your passions, but you only have 90 seconds. Um, well, maybe we'll have to have you back. <laughs> uh, emojis are a great topic. You know, I guess the only thing I'm going to say here is that there's, I think, been a, a lot of angst in the lawyer community about using emojis either in advertising or within in business communications. And definitely there's an old guard in the legal community, either the boomer plus category, maybe even the Gen Xer category, or just people who are really conservative as lawyers who think that using emojis either in advertising or in business communications is inappropriate. And I just feel like that's almost like an ageist kind of response. I think that emojis have become part of the lexicon. They're part of the way we talk to each other. And definitely among the younger community, they're an integral part of how they talk to each other. So telling people like, you're welcome to work at our law firm, but you can't talk to us in emojis. It's basically telling those people, we don't want to speak your language. It's a really harsh response. But uh, emojis in uh, advertising are always are at a risk of being misinterpreted because they can have multiple meanings. And that is a known risk, but that's true for pretty much anything that you put in your ad copy. So you always have to stress test that to make sure you understand how it's going to be perceived. But if you are able to determine that it's going to be perceived well, why wouldn't you use emojis in advertising? Not only is that a way that people are talking to each other, but they're really cute. And I'll tell you, from my own personal experience, when we add emojis to subjects, lines, and email while wow, the open rates and response rates go through the roof. People like them. Use them. Embrace them. Yeah, agreed. Well, Dean Goldman, again, thank you so, so much for joining us and spending some time talking about this. We really appreciate extremely valuable information for all lawyers and anybody really at the intersection of law practice and technology. And are there places you would like to call out that folks should connect with you online? I welcome anyone to uh, follow me at my blog, blog.erickgoldman.org. Um, and also, Twitter's another good place to see what I'm thinking about, and that's at Eric Goldman. I remember back to the early days of Avo when the legal industry lost their collective minds around lawyers being reviewed. I feel like you were there for that, Conrad. I used to feel the calls. I, I, I had the distinct <laughs> pleasure. And I like this is really twisted. I spent at least a year of my life. I always got the calls when people called in who were angry and there were quite a few of them. I got the ones that got it, it like accelerated up the chain to me. 
And I dealt with the lawyers who were super, super angry. And a lot of that was around being reviewed online. How do you know it's a client? How do you know it's this? This is blah, blah, blah. Like, and I learned a lot about Section 230 the hard way that year, or not the, even the hard way. It was actually the good way for me because if you know Section 230, you understand that Ava was very okay publishing their reviews. And, and, and the lawyers, Bruce Johnson was our First Amendment attorney. He was fantastic. He's, he's done some work with me in the past. He, he's just a great guy. I spent a lot of time with him learning about Section 230. And I just spent... 12 months of my life just getting ripped apart for the internet publishing reviews on lawyers. At this point in time, it's mundane. I mean, we started this show talking about it being a local ranking factor, right? And it's it seems so obvious. It's just fascinating. You know, that's that was 2007. It's not that long ago where this was not just revolutionary or evolutionary, but it was like the fury with which people responded to that was interesting. And it's just, it's accepted at this point in time. If it can be rated, it will be rated. That was it. You, you know, who said that. Uh, hold on. Uh, See, I'm blanking. Rich Barton. That's right. Uh, that's. I remember my first avocating. He was the keynote, and I'll always remember that because he was so right. He was sorry. Except He's, he, not right about buying. Oh, real a, estate on <laughs> so so for background really quickly rich barton um started expedia at microsoft and then spun that out uh mark Britton, who was the ceo of ava was his gc at expedia and i had the distinct pleasure of spending a lot of time with rich talking about these things he then went on to found zillow and rated houses and the rating of houses was basically an assessment of how much a house is worth and he does that algorithmically and if you're a real estate agent you hate him if you are joe public you love him for giving you the ability to see what your house is worth no but as an agent you generate leads for you oh have you talked to real estate agents about how much they All right, love we're not, zillow? Not for the show <laughs> you know the thing i wanted to uh, reflect upon from this interview with Eric that really kind of level set, you know, we kept talking about consumer harm and fake reviews and impact and lawyers paying reviews and all this stuff. But the thing that he mentioned that really, you know, kind of brought me back, and I know that some people are gonna be unsatisfied with this answer, but remember that before reviews, before online publishing, before the internet, how did you hire a lawyer? You got one review in the form of a word of mouth referral. And we can debate about the uh, value of this, but the truth is, is that, you know, in many ways, the whole idea here is that you have a lot more access to information. Yeah, it's not perfect information, but here's the reminder. It wasn't perfect information back then either. So thanks again to Dean Goldman. We really, really appreciate you spending the time with us. I think it was a super valuable episode. And um, be very interesting to see how the intersection of lawyer reviews, legal marketing, and, and really Facebook and these other platforms, uh, how things unfold with Congress and whatnot over the next couple of years. So really great episode. Thanks again. And to you, dear listeners, thank you so much for dropping by another episode of Lunch Hour Legal Marketing. Please do remember, as we always ask you to do, leave us a review, good or bad or indifferent. Actually, leave an indifferent review. I haven't seen an indifferent review. That's a great one. Speaking of reviews. And if this is your first time catching us, do subscribe on your favorite podcasting thingamabob. Until next time, Guy and Conrad, Lunch Hour Legal Marketing, out. Thank you for listening to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing. 
If you'd like more information about what you heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Follow Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.